Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. We're here. We're here. Back in the sweat box. Not just a new year, a new decade. Oh, I mean, Well, there's contention around that. There always is on that one, isn't it? So, new year, mm-hmm. season new five. It's gone cool. so fast, yes. but uh, time flies when you're having a ball. We're going to be doing lots of new things this year, mm-hmm. expanding our platform, mm-hmm. as they say. So, yeah, we're going to be doing, what, webinars, Training. trainings at conferences and things, all under the sort of speakeasy banner in yep. one form or another. We'll say a few more words at the yeah, end Yeah, toward the, the end. Yeah. We'll give people a heads up on some things that are coming, right? Yep. But let's get on with today's episode. Yes, and we've got new microphones, so we almost need to concentrate on speaking into them, and I don't yeah. think I'm doing a very good job at the moment. But It is, yeah. We'll try. Bit tricky. Mm. Let's see how we go. So we just wanted to remind ourselves of why we're doing these podcasts, <laughs> our mission, and and part of that mission is to bring a range of knowledge out f- from behind the experts and into the light. And we know that knowledge comes from a range of places, from the lived experience, from research, from clinical practice, from cultural knowledge and and all of that combined. And we also want to shift across disciplines and sectors. No one knows it all. We need to have everybody's uh, input. So we've got a few interviews lined up for the beginning of the year that bring in some expertise from places we haven't gone before. So today we're going to discuss human rights and disabilities and how we might apply these this knowledge to our particular interests of hep C, drugs and harm reduction. Um, so our guests today are, are two legends that we're so privileged to have in the studio. Scientia Professor Louise Chappell, Director of the Australian Human Rights Institute at UNSW. Welcome, Louise. Well, thank you so much. Lovely to have you here. Mm. Great to be here. And, and Rosemary Kayes. Such a long list of things to say. Lawyer, Senior Research Fellow at UNSW, teacher, advocate and globally recognised as an elected member and Vice Chair of the UN Committee on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So good to have you here, yeah. Rosemary. Can I just add the 2019 Australian Human Rights Medalist? Wow. Congratulations. It's fabulous to be here and sweat with you. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we're all friends here. An, an inclusive sweatness going on today. So we wanted to, you know, start off the conversation and ask you guys, with all this expertise you bring, what do we need to know about human rights? Where do we start? Just a small topic. <laughs> Just bite off and chew. <laughs> They're looking at each other. No, you. No, you. You say. <laughs> um, well, what we need to know about human rights is probably not what we get about human rights mm. in the public domain. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what human rights are and how international law operates. Mm. So what we need to know about human rights is they're nothing new. They've been around for a very long time. There's been various versions of human rights throughout the world through to you know the earliest times of civilization. And not just in Western um, countries. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it has a, a long history through Africa and through the East, especially the West, West Asian region. So human rights is not something that's been contrived by the UN. The UN is basically just the latest manifestation mm. of human rights. Yeah. And... Human rights is not 
personal characteristic specific. Whilst we know a lot about, you know, the disability convention or the women's convention as they get referred to, human rights are universal and they're indivisible. So human rights are not just about special rights for some groups. Uh, They're often characterised that way, aren't they? They are the rights of all of us by virtue of us being human. Did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, th- I think for me um, it's been really interesting in the last three years I've been directing this new Australian Human Rights Institute here at UNSW mm-hmm. and one of the um, struggles, one of the benefits I suppose because we're an interdisciplinary uh, institute is to really understand that human rights isn't only about the law And the law is fundamental to this, but it's also about the way we live our lives, the way we respond to our fellow human beings, the way we devise our policies. Mm. And it strips away, I think, that um, sense of who's entitled to what to a sense of we all have fundamental rights. Mm. It's not goodness or badness that gets you into the door of Mm. provision of any particular right, whether it's health or housing or education uh, education or protection from violence, we're all entitled to that. Whether we're in prison, whether we're, you know, the prefect in the class, whether we're a refugee. Mm. And I think one of the problems that I I wrestle with is that it has become so legalised, the language around it. And for many people, that's really alienating. It's incredibly important, of course, but I think we've got to find new ways to talk about it outside the legal realm and realise that this is, a, this is a language and a framework that can travel across mm. all different approaches and sectors. And the great thing about it is it just sort of it instantly removes the discrimination that you can get mm. if you apply other models. And I think we, we've seen with, say, robo-debt or mm. any of those sorts of policies, it's they're, they're all sort of predicated on a view that there are deserving and undeserving mm, people. Mm. Human rights approach to me says that should not come into mm. play. Mm. We all have the right to claim what is there under international law mm. and that's where the law is really important because it's set out the frameworks and so how can we best implement that? And in the work that we've been doing, because we've been having this dialogue, you know, what is a human rights approach? Mm. I think we're sort of settling on three aspects of that in the work that we're trying to do, all of it to be interdisciplinary, all of it to be applied, but that we've got to identify what the harm is Mm. that people are experiencing, think about the accountability mechanisms that exist and what redress is available. Mm. And I think working within those three which are really fundamental to Mm. there's nothing new in that it's just um trying to use a language around it that's not just about talking about um provision (laughs) 5.6 in treaty Mm. such and Mm. such Mm. which you know my wonderful colleague here (laughs) is such an expert in and needs to be and that i don't want i don't want to in any way um devalue that important work but just to say it's got to be a both and approach Mm. and that it is available for all of us working Mm. across policy Mm. to pick this up as a framework that sort of fundamentally strips out the discriminatory aspects that can slip Mm. in when we think about 
who's good, who's bad, who who mm. should get access to something. Yeah. So in this kind of context of rights for all, and, and actually I think, Rosemary, you touched on this a little bit, you know, I'm aware of conversations that occur around the idea that human rights is this kind of, you know, Western, liberal, kind of post-Enlightenment type concept. And so I'd be interested to know what both of you think about that idea and whether you think the concept of human rights, you know, has a sort of cultural resonance outside of Western contexts. History shows us that there have been codified human rights throughout human history. So I would suggest that the way the conventions have been negotiated, especially if we go back to the negotiations around the um, the initial instruments of general application, which are known as the International Bill of Human Rights. Oh, so right. the Universal Declaration right. on Human Rights, the which International... Was, well, late 40s, wasn't it? Late 1940s? 1940, yep, yep, 48. And then in the 60s, uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Now... The language, especially in the Universal Declaration, was very strategically structured to bring in elements of East and West. Mm-hmm. So it's based around individual rights, mm. but it also has state obligations. And so there is that capture of both the collective and the individual. They are all premised on individual rights, but there are positive duties on states of what has to be done to ensure that those individual rights can be enjoyed. I think to suggest that it's just a Western concept is problematic in that it's premised on human dignity and if human dignity is the standard by which human rights should be applied, then I don't see how there can be a cultural argument Mm. from deviation of Mm. human value and dignity. And worth. Mm. Mm. I agree, Rosemary. I mean, I I think there are definitely... I mean, you've heard these... these Oh, of course, said, yeah. of course. Yeah. So I, and just, it pops up every now and all again. All the time and, and you know, there's, you there, yeah. there is a strong pushback and I yeah. think it's a real challenge for human rights defenders and right. activists um, working in particular contexts where there is an attack on mm-hmm. this notion of human dignity and the individualisation and maybe a misrepresentation of what uh, human rights actually are. Mm-hmm. But there's also very much a need to be sensitive. I think there has been, in some senses, a missionary zeal around human rights. You know, people (laughs) talk about it as a replacement of religion in some ways and people have gone in and not been culturally sensitive. Mm. Um, And we can see it with our own Indigenous communities here. I mean, it's... So that that nice Mm. term that... um, I think it's Sally Engel comes up with the vernacularization of human rights Mm. is really, really important. So Mm. it's very key to have local communities determine for themselves what human dignity actually means and to have that imposed from outside is really problematic Mm. and so that sort of global north global south sort Mm. of debate plays out here like it does in many areas that too often we have seen 
the global north who's had the powerful voice in terms of the human rights defenders communities going in on the ground and telling people what their rights are and what they should be when they operate on very different cultural um, social religious sort of practices and it's about how do we make that language of human dignity work across different contexts yeah. and how can we enable people to make the decisions for themselves of how they want to live human rights mm. um and mm. uh, and i think it's that sort of complexity the nuance that the human rights framework is open to for sure mm. but i don't think that's been always done very well mm. The danger is that that argument gets used to limit rights. Mm. Yes. Or to say that human rights is not something that, you know, this is being imposed on yeah. us. Yeah. We, we, we work in a different cultural context, but human dignity is still, you're still dealing with human beings. Yeah. So the standard of human dignity, whilst it does need to be context specific, yeah. you need to be responding to the situation that that community is experiencing mm. but human dignity is still the standard that yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. Mm. So to focus on Australia now and, and, and a lot of what we know from about human rights comes from media, both, you know, good, bad and ridiculous, about the um, right to have free speech, for mm. example. So what what is the platform of human rights in Australia and, and does it vary by state by state with charters of human rights in some places and not in others? What's going on? Yeah, it's like our f- federation. It's a patchwork, right? <laughs> and um, we have not been able to get a national um, Commonwealth charter up. There have been a, a number of attempts, there have been uh, various governments having a number of inquiries. It's usually only Labor governments that have attempted to do it, but never been willing to push through um, to the end. I think last year was the anniversary of uh, 10 years Mm. since the last one of those. Mm. Um, And states have got frustrated with that themselves and have gone ahead and implemented Mm. um, their own charters of rights. And that's really important given in our federation, a lot of social policy is left left at the state state level. level. So, you know, treatment of prisoners or Mm. health, Mm. education. Policing. Policing. That all does happen. So Mm -hmm. these are not to be dismissed. Mm. Um, Again, it's it's needing both to Mm. happen at the same time. So we've got uh, Victoria and the ACT. Queensland. Queensland now, um, last year. Um, New South Wales continues to just trail way behind. We had a Labor Premier in Bob Carr who was completely opposed, Mm. always arguing that we'll end up like the US because he's, you know, a student of the US, Mm. but as if that's the only model Mm. of uh, a Charter of Rights we can have. There is a, a an active movement in New South Wales and and nationally to keep a charter of rights on the agenda, um, but I think the what the work the research has shown around those states that do have charters of rights is that they have a really important educative function, especially for public servants, mm-hmm. and especially so the judiciary and the right. judiciary. So making policy decisions and then deciding on matters of Mm. law, that's a really, really important function. Mm. It's funny you mention the 10-year anniversary because Belinda Smith and I, a colleague from the law school at the University of uh, Sydney, 
we did a chapter in a book on um, a reflection of the 10 years of the Victorian Human Rights Charter. And what we did was we looked at two particular cases. One is an education case that was very high profile, especially within the disability context, about a, a young boy with an acquired brain injury and access to mainstream education. Mm-hmm. Now, this is <laughs> the Purvis case just raises everybody's eyebrows because the High Court twisted and turned and got themselves into absolute knots to come out with come up with an outcome that they wanted that was going to make sure that this young young man wasn't able to go to mainstream school. And it sort of tortured what the Disability Discrimination Act test for discrimination is and it's been problematic ever since mm-hmm. and it, it was back in 2006. Mm-hmm. So the case we um, compared it to was Manningham Council, which was in Victoria. Again, a man with a few disabilities. One of them was um, an acquired brain injury and a cognitive disability. And he was dedicated, and when I say dedicated, I mean seriously dedicated to informing the council of things that were that needed fixing within the local government area. So if a footpath had a, a trip like the mm-hmm. concrete had separated, he would be reporting it. If, mm-hmm. you know, the public toilet wasn't flushing properly, he would report it. And he was deeply dedicated to this, that staff at the council were complaining that he's there all the time and he thought people weren't taking it seriously. And, and it escalated and it escalated. Finally, the council barred him from any council property or buildings. How that transpired, how that was implemented, was that he couldn't pick up his granddaughter from the local pool Mm. and he couldn't use public toilets. Now, if it had gone through as a straight, straight discrimination, Disability Discrimination Act case, he would have lost, like Daniel Hoggan in the Purvis case. But because it was in Victoria, they had to consider his right to political participation. Mm, Interesting. And so he was being denied his right Mm. to political participation. Mm. And what they did was look at the training of the council workers and their ability to manage people that are a bit overzealous about reporting local things. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, he had behaviour to answer to and you can't accept um, people working in conditions where they've got people that are, you know, aggressive, but you also need to have trained staff with skills that know how to engage with the wide variety of human beings that will come to their counter. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so why, why don't we put a link to those yeah. charters on nice. this website page yeah. so people can have a look at the kinds of things that are protected yeah. within them. Well, and, and I mean, that's the other thing about a lot of the, the Australian charters is this obsession with keeping economic, social and cultural rights out of the picture. Mm. Right. So, oh, we're only going to do civil and political rights. We're not going to do economic, social and cultural rights. And the argument is that because it's policy-based, it's the government's role to be making those sorts of policy decisions. You shouldn't be having the judiciary 
and the judiciary can't make judgment calls on that. The rights aren't justiciable. Yeah. But economic, social and cultural rights have been judiciable through the international system. Can you just years. tell us what you yeah. judiciable is? <laughs> and I'm not sure I can even say it. When judges can make judgments about right. and make a finding, make a binding finding. Yeah, right. <laughs> a binding finding. A binding finding. <laughs> Everyone wants a binding finding. Um, but, but there have been also s- successful constitutional frameworks where economic, social and cultural rights are part of the legal framework, South Africa being the case in point. So whilst the charters are a great step forward, Mm. this obsession with um, quarantining Mm. economic, social and cultural rights Mm. is a bit problematic because as we just all agreed, Mm. a lot of the human rights stuff happens within that economic, cultural and so I was economic, just going to ask you, actually, what sort of – just a couple of examples of economic, cultural and social rights. What sort of things Education. Would, yeah. Housing. Health. Yeah. Right. Mm. Oh, nice. Just those small yeah. things. Yeah, those little – So, <laughs> so adequate <laughs> standard of living. Anyone want to chat about <laughs> New Start? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think what right. has happened – That's why they don't want to go there. Sorry. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's right. It's putting an onus on the state to yeah. take responsibility for that. But yeah. I think actually having the charters there – still makes the decision makers think about whether it fits in. So you could use that political participation argument maybe in relation to, you know, lack of access to something that's linked to economic rights potentially. You know, they're they're stretching it as far as they possibly can. Oh, well, yeah, we've got a history of that. Look at how far we stretched political communication after the Longy um, judgment. That's right. Um, So, I mean... You spoke about you know free speech. You know, everyone, mm. yeah, <laughs> it's been the it was the mantra for the last couple of years yeah. about yeah. free speech. Um, I mean, the actual right is the right to um, freedom of expression. Mm. I mean, essentially in Australia, we're pretty piecemeal at recognising human rights, mm-hmm. but through the common law process, we do have the right to political communication. I think it's uh, like it's such a uh, real stain on Australia when we compare ourselves Mm. to those most like us countries, so New Zealand, the UK, Canada. They they have all got some enshrined, Mm. uh, well, either legislative or or constitutional. um, We're the only common law country, and it's just it's really shameful, and it's Mm. quite hard to explain it's it's a bit like our approach to climate change mm. i mean what what's ha- what's happened here so that we've yeah. lost the momentum yeah. around these sorts of mm. things mm. um when there's such a need an obvious need mm. for them and i think you know one of the areas that's sort of most disgraceful is around indigenous rights mm. and you know we see again yesterday yet another the closing, closing the gap, gap report, yeah, report yeah. you know we just yeah. but you know, when Indigenous people have been invited to come up with their own plan, the vernacularisation yeah. process mm. happening and they present it and then it's just, just rebuffed rejected. within a matter yeah. of days. Meaning the, the voice... So the, well, the, the Uluru, Uluru statement, statement yeah. as a whole yeah. and then the voice to parliament mm-hmm. as part of that. You just... You think, what what what's, what is wrong with us as, mm. a, as a nation that mm. we're not taking this seriously? It, 
yeah. it's not a, ever a big, a really big issue at the ballot box. Mm. The main political parties are mm. so hopeless in taking mm. this forward. And, uh, you know, we're left, well, the Indigenous mm. communities left and, and those of us who support them fighting mm. all over again. Yeah. Uh, now against an Indigenous minister who's suggesting some very, very, very watered-down mm. process. Mm. When, I mean, that that's, that Uluru statement is not a Bill of Rights as such, mm. but it is about enshrining mm. more rights in the mm. Constitution. Mm. And um, the political process just seems to be completely mm. unable to deal with that. And I, yeah. I think it's such a shocking... Yeah, I agree with you because, I mean, particularly when we're, we're talking about all of this, you know, in the context, as you said, basic human dignity, yeah. you do have to ask some very <sighs> fundamental questions. And, and it kind of links to the question I wanted to um, ask you next, um, particularly, Louise, uh, you know, one of the things in our space around illicit drug use, injecting drug use, harm reduction, all those sorts of issues has been, you know, some really interesting landmark cases in Canada um, yeah. under the... I think it's the called the Fundamental the Rights and Freedoms yeah, or whatever, you know, charter. around the injecting centre and heroin prescription and those kinds of things that actually, you know, went right to the sort of, um, you know, their federal court or whatever to, to sort of Spring. say these people do have, you know, fundamental rights uh, to these programs and, and services. So... My understanding is is the Human Rights Institute does have kind of, I don't know if the word focal point is right, but health and human rights mm-hmm. as, as one of its sort of areas of interest. So in terms of some of those issues that Speakeasy talks about a lot and that Carla and I both work on around harm reduction, drug use, hep C, HIV, all those kinds of things, what, what's your thoughts on sort of some of those issues and where, you know, what we might need to be focusing on? And, and how can we bring a, a rights focus mm. to help us yeah, think through these things or, or generate action? Yeah. Uh, Rosemary's saying, no, don't. Say <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I, th- I think it'd, it'd be wonderful. And um, indeed, we're working on a, on a um, book project that you might want to be involved in <laughs> called Realising Rights. And what we want to do is use this sort of framework around harm, accountability and redress and apply it to... Uh, different policy sectors that you might not necessarily think of in a human rights sense or probably more closely linked to the economic, cultural and and social rights. Um, So, and and health health being one of them. And there are so many different dimensions of the health and human rights piece, but you're deeply Mm. embedded in Mm. in one of them. Mm. Um, And again, I think what's very apparent across that whole um, area is the discrimination that takes place. Um, I was actually at a a daily long workshop yesterday at the George Institute and we're working on a project around sex and gender disaggregated data in health. And one of the... um, Meaning that most um, research reports are written from from a male gaze, that there might be only male participants or there's not a a looking at how things influence men and women differently. Exactly. So drug regimes, the fact that we've only just started to realise how women present with heart conditions and uh, and heart attacks. Differently from what is assumed to be normal, which is all research done on men. Mm. And and it, it goes very deep. I mean... 
they mostly do experiments on male mice mm. because they're understood to be more stable. Mm. And so what we... They haven't got the hysteria. The hyster- <laughs> they don't have female the hysteria. Mice might they, bring. they don't have the hormones. And then this, and then <laughs> this gets... Hormones. You know, there's amazing work being done to show like different sorts of chemotherapy will work on one mm. sex and not the other. Um, wow. So sex is one thing, but it's the gender, gender. stereotypes mm. that mm. you expect... So osteoporosis is a terrible problem for men, but mm. we don't know about it. What happens with male breast cancer victims? Yep. We don't know enough about it. So we talked a lot yesterday about um, cardiovascular disease because there's a lot of expertise at the George in that area. And it was incredible. Women, women die, I think it's about 20% more frequently a year after their first heart attack than men do, mm-hmm. largely because they're not given the right medication. Right or not even given any medication at all. And as part of this research, one of the things they've found out that ambulances are less likely to put their sirens on when they get a call out for a woman with chest pains than men. This is documented in Victorian research. Wow. So why? (laughs) So not so important. Not so oh, really? important. So, oh my God. Th- so if we apply this thing around harm, accountability and redress to, mm. to something like that, you can sort of see how it plays yeah. out. I mean, the harm yeah. is enormous yeah. in not mm-hmm. taking that into mm. account. The accountability mm. systems mm. have to be put there at every step of the process, from the, the mm. bench laboratory mm. work all the way through to the clinical practitioners mm. and mm. beyond. And then how are we going to fix this? Like what are we going to do put in place that – Men and women and non-binary people are getting the same access Mm. to health. Yeah, but it it goes even further. I mean, the Disability Innovation Institute, of which I'm a member of the team. um, Also at UNSW. Also at UNSW. I like that little plug in there, Colour. (laughs) I'm a good company Uh, person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, the basis of... The Institute's work is to increase the inclusive research practice of academics. And so it's whilst we do it in the context of disability, we do it in the context of disability, but it it applies across the board because it's about ensuring that research is grounded within human diversity mm-hmm. and that we recognise that human diversity comes in a a broad range of colours, shapes, sizes, and that we don't narrowly define research subjects because you get skewed Mm. data. And if we're operating on on bad data, Mm. well, of course, your policy outcomes Mm. or whatever is going to be problematic. Mm. And so... For the Indigenous community, fetal alcohol um, syndrome, huge, fastest growing rate of prison incarcerations, young Indigenous women with fetal alcohol syndrome. So it's not just a gender thing, it's also a disability thing. Mm. It's not just an Indigenous thing. The prevalence of disability within the Indigenous population is up towards 50%. Mm. 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I just saw a report in the newspaper, um, which you know, I was impressed that it got there, about acquired brain injury and incarceration and the huge rates of um, mm. that in, in our incarcerated populations, you know, close to 50% as well. And so what are we imagining when we imagine someone in our incarcerated system and the needs that they might have to be able to function in that system but also understand their sentence and their crime and think about ways in which you know to avoid recidivism around those things mm. it's just shocking the overrepresentation of cognitive disability mm. within our prison system mm. and Absolutely. a lot of that is acquired brain, brain injury, injury from yeah. substance abuse yeah. and there's lots of flow-on effects from that mm. i mean people with disability within the criminal justice system especially people with cognitive disability, have the potential to be indefinitely detained mm. if they're um, deemed to be unfit to plea. Mm. Yeah, right. Mm. And so they get taken out of the process by a means of you know, justice diversion mm. that is supposed to be some form of you know, special measure for disability so they get access to a fair trial. But what it has meant is that people with disability end up administratively detained in the main part of the prison without conviction Mm -hmm. for periods of time way in excess of what they would have got if they just pleaded guilty to the original. (laughs) Yeah. We're almost running out of time because I know Rosemary's got to go, but Louise, you're burning to say something. I'm burning (laughs) to say something and it's picking up on something that I heard Rosemary talk about last year and that is and I hate the term actually intersectionality, but um, that's what we've got to work with. I think one of the problems, a point we're at with human rights um, thinking is that it has sort of been siloed a lot. So you've got your disability convention, you've got your women's convention, you've got your, you know, racial discrimination convention. And we work within those sort of Mm. buckets. But I mean, there are overarching rights conventions, but they're, they're very old too mm. and, and they didn't take account of disability, they didn't mm. take account mm. of gender or other mm. things. Uh, no one takes account of sexuality. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's a problem. I think a next step for us is really to think about how do we think in better ways around how those intersectional disadvantages mm. um, and, and rights abuses happen mm. and how can we s- respond to those yeah. so that we avoid – I mean, that's a shocking situation mm. that you're talking about, but mm. what's the problem there? It's it's multi-layered. Yeah, it layers up and compounds and compounds, compounds doesn't it? And, you know, we've got to work from where that person is to work out what maybe the primary foundation is. We can't assume that it's all gender or all mm. race or all disability. It's the combination. Yeah. Mm. So, look, I think we got through yeah. not even half of what we plan to talk about. So <laughs> we maybe might just have to have you back. Exactly, if we again. can entice you, maybe in a cooler yeah. month <laughs> into this place. <laughs> be great. Yeah, but we wanted to say thank I mean, this has really taken us into places that are really deep yep. and very thoughtful conversation. So, really, thank yep. you very much Appreciate for that. And expertise. We will ask you back. Yeah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. I'd love to come back. I think back. a lot of the people who tune into us will learn heaps yeah, from this. So absolutely. It's really great. So we'll put nice. up some resources on the episode page so people things. can yep. have a look at other things if they want to. Absolutely. But we wanted to do a quick plug before yeah. we sign off. So yeah. Annie, do you want to 
So we've got a new uh, webinar series that's coming up under the Speakeasy banner, as I said earlier. Speakeasy in practice. Speakeasy in practice. So basically all of the principles and the issues and the ideas we talk about in Speakeasy in the podcast, we're going to be sort of starting to do different sorts of formats that might put those, you know, in everyday Mm. sort of context and practice a little bit. So the webinar series is the first. It's going to be a journal club type webinar and we're really going to be looking at, you know, different um, academic journal papers, having a look at those, uh, looking at the research, how it's been done, uh, pulling that apart a bit and sort of asking the so what questions and And how you might apply them in your work and all of that sort of stuff. So it's not just, you know, it's not only for researchers. In fact, it's, you know, really really for researchers. It's designed for people working in community, community members, early career researchers, uh, student, high degree research students, that sort of thing to really demystify the process Mm. of reading um, journal papers. So if you're on the list for UNSW for the Centre for Social Research and Health, you'll get a email soon mm-hmm. about that and please register limited places so mm-hmm. sign up soon yeah and a, and a safe a, a safe non-academic way yeah. to get into this stuff so yeah. as you said demystifying opening up yep. what is it what's in there how are they written why are they written in such mm-hmm. arcane weird yeah. ways these yeah. journal papers and, and what, what might have been the them. purpose of the research yeah. what were the researchers thinking and why did they do it and mm. ethical issues all of that sort of thing so mm. we'll have a different journal paper each time got a bit of a guide for you to, to have with the paper to help you sort of think mm. through some of the questions. And we're starting with a paper that um, Annie led as uh, first author. So yeah. we'll we start where we know. But anyway, we'll sign out for this first episode of 2020. Welcome back. Glad to have you all out there. All our four or seven listeners an episode. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you soon. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.